welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. We always appreciate you taking time in your weekends to be with us, to come and be part of our liturgy, to come join us at the table. And we know that mild weather combined with some of these snowstorms can be a big draw for some of you to leave the city on the weekend, those of you who are skiers and hikers and all that. But we also know that major sporting events can be a distraction for some of us this time of year. And yes, I am referencing the fact that there is a big football game going on tonight. And I'm sure that some of you will be gathering with friends to watch. And some of you will say to me that you don't care, which is fine, except I just want you to admit that you're going to watch J-Lo and Shakira at halftime. <laughs> and there's no shame in that to each their own, right? Are there any J-Lo fans? Probably. At least one. Anyways, <laughs> one whoop. <laughs> It's good. Regardless of your evening plans, we're so glad that you're here. Um, And in part, that's because our gatherings, us coming together, being face-to-face, that's such a big part of community building, so thank you for that. Also today, we are heading back to Rome. We're glad you've joined us for that, where last week we picked up a conversation that we have actually been having over several years since Commons started. See, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to early Christ followers in the city of Rome, it is so full of theological content that it requires some extra time and attention from us. And this is why we have moved through it bit by bit. And this year, we have actually come back to finish it off. We are in the last section of the letter. And what that means is that Paul has laid out his big arguments, means that he has made his case that the Jewish people are still part of God's redemptive ark. He's contended for how the Gentiles should be brought into these new faith communities that were popping up all over the Mediterranean. And as a trained rabbi, Paul was always, 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 always rooting his ideas in the Hebrew scriptures, which can make him a really difficult person to track with sometimes because he makes jumps and connections that we don't always pick up if we're just picking up the text and reading it. And the point to remember is this, that Paul didn't think that he was writing theology for first century Christians. No, he was writing letters And he was answering questions and he was picturing people that he knew, their faces and expressions, as he tried to help communities find a way forward together, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't take his words as being significant. It just means that we have to admit how Paul was building these ideas that come to us. He was building them as he went along. How he wasn't working towards securing a book deal and he wasn't trying to get chosen to do a TED Talk. He was just trying to stay grounded in the world. And giving Paul this license to build theology and to do theology is so important. As we try to make sense of why, as we saw last week, Paul tells the Roman community to honor and respect their leaders, to recognize that their leaders are in place because God allows them to be. Because while we aren't exactly sure why Paul felt he needed to give those instructions, we do assume that he cares about this community there in Rome. And maybe because some of the Gentile Christians that are part of that community, maybe they're part of the Roman machinery. They're just little pawns in this imperial bureaucracy. Maybe the Jewish Christians that are part of that community are marginalized because of their ethnicity. And in cases like this, Paul's concern seems to remind Jesus' followers that they are living on the margins. That the message that they carry about Jesus is a provocative and a dangerous one for the powers of Rome. So be careful, he tells them. Don't take unnecessary risks. 
And remember, also, he says, that your true allegiance isn't to empires and civic powers and rulers that can use the sword. Remember that you carry a different vision of the divine, a vision that we see in Jesus, where respect for power might be helpful with some, but ultimately you bow to a gentler God than Caesar. Which should remind and encourage so many of you in the advocacy that you do week in and week out that speaking to power, it can be really risky work, yes, but it's so valuable. And sometimes our leaders need to be challenged and provoked and encouraged towards justice. And from there, we looked a little bit about how Paul jumps into some instructions to this community. He pulls on some language from Jesus, he tells them to love their neighbors as themselves, and then two, to not let any debt remain in community except the debt of love. To remember that this love that they would give to each other, that this fulfills the law. And of course, when Paul uses that word, he's thinking of the great law of Moses, where rules and stipulations for food and worship and relationships had kept the Hebrew people separate. And Paul says to them, let love now be the thing that distinguishes you. And where empire and power threaten and control and separate you as they always will, let love be what holds and centers you to each other. Which are words I'm sure his friends needed to hear, but those are words that we need today. And so we take them now and we move into chapter 14. But before we do that, let's pray together. God, of stories that bring us here, You're God of authorities and powers that we see around us. And you are God of the higher law of love that we strive to follow. We ask that you would be with us as we work to be wise in all we do. The ways that we help power to be better. In the ways that we challenge power to be different. And in the ways that we advocate for those who have no power left. And those who power has left behind. We ask too that you'd help us to remember that your kingdom is always calling to us from outside the spaces of notoriety and authority and how your way is gentler because it doesn't grasp for the strength that so often wounds us. Let love be what marks us and distinguishes us as individuals, as families, and a community in this city. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, so as we jump back in today, I want to take note of something as we get going, something that we didn't have time to get to last week at the end of chapter 13. And there, Paul has just finished telling the Roman Christians to love each other. And then he quickly adds this. He says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over Day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And Paul goes on. He tells them, be decent people. Don't go around carousing. There's an old-fashioned word. Don't go around getting drunk. Don't engage in harmful and debasing sexual practices. Don't cause dissension. Don't be jealous. Be like Jesus, he says. Don't live just to fulfill your desires. And to be quite honest, this is Paul at his prescriptive best slash worst. This is often one of the things that some people take exception to with Paul. But here's the thing that you need to remember with him. And you can see it in the language that I just read to you. See, 
Paul was convinced that the world was about to end, like tomorrow. And Jesus was going to come and he was going to initiate this new kingdom and all was going to become as it should be. But in the meantime, it was super important for early Christians to share the story and the message of Jesus, to take it and travel with it and proclaim it and to not let anything get in their way. Not lovemaking or starting a family or negotiating long-term relationships with the government. And Paul was so concerned that the story get told. But then, too, he's concerned that early Christians not disqualify themselves from the world that was going to come by being immoral or by making themselves somehow tainted. That they weren't to bring shame on themselves or on these new communities that were springing up, which is one of the primary reasons that he comes off so angsty and so direct and so earnest and really, really urgent all of the time. Which, to be quite honest, I get. I mean, I don't know if any of you have some angst in the mornings when you're trying to get going and someone you know and someone you love makes it hard for that to happen, but I do. Last week, I was getting our youngest daughter out the door to school, and she is nine, and she is a powerhouse. She's a wonderful powerhouse, which just means that if you are trying to move her or push her and she is not interested... Good luck. And anyway, I don't remember what caused the issue initially. Maybe it was some combination of food being spilled on the last clean outfit we had, or library books being misplaced, or distracted play in the bathroom, while literally I'm standing at the door waiting to walk her to school because the bell has already rung, and we are three blocks away, and she doesn't even have shoes on. And if I'm honest, I was only slightly bothered because she was going to be late for school. That's not the biggest issue in my books, and if you're a teacher, no offense. I'm far more bothered that my plan for the day is being pushed back, and that my expectations are having to adjust. So I start giving very, very urgent instructions. I'm being very direct, I'm clearly bothered, hashtag mad dad, hashtag dad fail. And Nora, and Nora just froze. And with some astute nine-year-old emotional intelligence, she screeched at me. She says, Dad, stop! When you sound like you're frustrated and you tell me what to do, I get so upset. And I just sighed. See, because sometimes Nora needs me to move her along in the world. Sometimes she needs my direction, she needs my help, but she always needs me to prioritize care over intensity. Because I do love her, and I do want what's best, but sometimes urgency clouds that affection. Which is how I think we need to hear Paul. Where sometimes he gets super directive and he's handing out instructions that sound harsh, or we can feel that they're limiting the way that we might want to live. And one of the things that can help is to remember why he wrote. How he sat in the ancient world as the twilight gathered and he's scratching out a letter to these friends and he's so concerned that the mission might fail. And he's so concerned that the world's going to end. And he was afraid that his friends were going to make bad choices. We're all along. When you look at Paul, you can't deny that he loved Jesus. You can't deny that he thought Jesus' way was the best. He clearly loved these people he's writing to. And sometimes, like you and me, sometimes urgency clouds the best intentions we have for those we love. So my encouragement to you, as we work forward in these next few weeks, take care as you listen to Paul. And be careful with each other this week, too. Because... 
after these urgent instructions, Paul goes right into this extended piece of commentary that we're going to look at. It begins as chapter 14 starts, where we read, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who doesn't eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, I realize as we start reading that, it's possible to think that Paul's talking about the ethical discussions around vegetarianism. Uh, He seems to be calling vegetarians weak, to which I just want to say that as someone who still eats meat, and I've read Michael Pollan, and I've watched multiple food documentaries, and I still own a barbecue, it's important to say that I know who the morally superior people are in my life, my vegetarian friends. And we appreciate your grace and your patience with the rest of us. You are not the weak ones, we are. And having said that, that's not Paul's point at all. Or at least, not exactly. See, this whole chapter centers around some conversations in the community in Rome. And apparently there's some friction in these conversations. All the heat seems to be coming from people talking about things that, according to Paul, are disputable. These things they're talking about, they're up for debate. There's differing opinion and perhaps for good reason. And as you read through the chapter, we see that these discussions center around whether Christians are allowed to eat certain forms of meat. They're centered around whether certain days are holy and whether they're supposed to be celebrated. And they're talking about whether and when and how Christians were allowed to drink wine. And not everybody agrees on these things. We're going to talk about that in a second. But first... A quick translation note, because I read the NIV to you a minute ago, except the one whose faith is weak, verse 1 says, which is a fairly standard working of the text. But given that the Greek literally reads, but the weak, the faith, you welcome. Scholar Catherine Grieb argues that we could translate this phrase, welcome in or with faith, those who are weak. And part of why I kind of like this reading is because it pulls our attention onto Paul's broader point and concern. See, Paul really wants this community to flourish, but he's aware that there are some people in this community who are in a weaker position. And who they are is something that's debated in scholarship. They may have been Jewish Christians who were still following strict kosher food laws, and they were struggling going to barbecues, and their Gentile siblings are eating meat at the Eucharist feast. Or they may have been community members who were bothered when others were eating meat that had been offered to idols at a civic festival, which, by the way, is how lots of people got their meat in the ancient world. Or perhaps, as Sylvia Kismat and Brian Walsh infer from Paul's letters to his friends in Corinth, these are the simple, these are the common born, these are the lowest class members in the community who don't have access to the luxuries of the community's shared meals. But the point isn't that we know exactly who the weak are or were. The point is that Paul saw this community being divided and broken into groups that didn't reflect the great faithfulness of God that they claimed to know and to carry. And Paul's concerned that they're not welcoming each other over things that are disputable. So he says to them, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever meets meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God too. 
where here, if we look at what Paul's saying, he's trying to get everybody to realize, look, you're all trying your best. You're all trying to honor God, trying to be moral and upright. And then he adds this. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? And here, Paul names a spectrum that we all find ourselves on. Maybe you live in the world and you have had your share of challenges, but you have lots to be thankful for. And you live a life of faith, not being hung up on following all the rules. You have come to a place where you don't worry about actions or substances or practices that are off limits or particularly problematic. I mean, you try to be wise and careful, but you don't stress about these things. Paul describes himself this way in verse 14, saying, I am convinced because of what I see in Jesus that nothing is unclean or wrong in and of itself, he says. Okay. Or maybe you live in the world, you've had your share of challenges, but you also have lots to be thankful for, and you live a life of faith where you feel that there are some boundaries that need to be observed, And you've come to a place where maybe because of your experience or through watching others or even maybe because of some of the work you do in the world, you believe that there are some actions or substances or practices that are off limits. Some of these things are problematic in our world for you, for those you love, or just in general. And you're always trying to be wise and careful. And of course, between these broad positions, there are many points in between. But here is what Paul's getting at. But if you find yourself in the second position, your tendency is going to be to judge those you feel have lower standards than you. Sometimes you're going to do that judging secretly, sometimes not so secretly. And you're going to look at other Christians' lives and see them as breaking the rules or not honoring scripture. You're going to see them as causing harm in the world, as being too gracious and too open and too loose. And on the other hand, if you find yourself closer to the first position, your tendency is going to be to despise or shame those that you don't feel are as woke as you are. And sometimes you're going to do that secretly, and sometimes not so secretly. You're going to look at the lives of other Christians and see them as maintaining unnecessary rules, not being careful with scripture. These people are causing harm. They're being too closed, too stiff, too restricted. And wherever you figure you are on that continuum... Paul's instructions here are helpful, where he gives us more than a tweetable proverb, like remember that everyone you see is fighting a battle or something like that. Paul pushes further than that language and says, remember that that person thinks they're being faithful. They think they're being devout, weak or strong. They are trying their best. And to this, Paul offers... Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a sibling. I mean, Paul's pretty clear, though. He sees being in the looser, more relaxed camp as better in the text. He believed that because of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus, issues of what food is sacred or profane, or what time is sacred or profane, or what beverages are sacred or profane, and things like these or those like them, these things were not worth fighting over. But Paul is also clear that while judging others can create an obstacle in that person's way towards good, so too is openly saying or doing or consuming something that you know is going to distract your sibling from what is good. When we use our freedom of conscience to burden somebody else's, so, Paul seems to say, 
Be on the open and the free side, but let's be clear, if that's you, you carry a higher responsibility for community. And Paul has a pretty specific image in his mind as he gives these instructions. Remember back in verse 4 where I read to you, who are you? to judge someone else's servant, to their own master, servants stand or fall. Here, scholars note that the Greek term translated into English as servant deserves some attention. See, because Paul doesn't use the common term doulos, which referred to slaves and basic servants in a house. No, he uses the term oikites, which referred to the members of a household, the children, the spouses, the freed persons, the clients, which means that Paul's using familial nuance and imagery. And by this, he says, who are you to judge someone who belongs to God's family? And I read this this way, and as we do, Paul's imagining these new Christian communities, he does so, he imagines them as intimate spaces, where in the middle of a highly stratified Roman society with households full of slaves and ruled by masters whose status and power were ultimate, Paul casts a completely different vision of the world. One in which there's a different kind of household master, one who welcomes all. And this is why Paul refers to Jesus as Lord nine times in the first 12 verses of chapter 14. Which is language that links to what Paul says in many other places when he calls followers of Jesus the beloved of God, the children of God, the heirs of God, the elect or the chosen ones of God, the children of the promise. And finally, he talks about them being one in Jesus. And maybe that's difficult language for you. Maybe because family wasn't a safe space in your childhood or because your family didn't or doesn't fit the model of what others see as normal or right. Or perhaps it's tough for you because Paul seems to be implying that the person who mistreated you, a person of faith, or a community that didn't care for you, or a person that you know they claim to follow Jesus, but their opinions are so different from you, and you know they're wrong, like you know it, and you feel like Paul's saying that the household of God might actually include them, I get that that's hard. It's difficult, and I don't think that Paul looks past our stories to say these things. But I do think that he's hoping that our stories won't push us from each other. And I think that's the point. I think that was super tough in the first century too, where to come to the table as we did today, this was a radical act. If you had status in the community, then to come to the table was an act of inclusion and radical humility. If you were weak in the community or you were on the margins of it, it was an act of radical hope and trust that you were allowed to come to this table, that you were accepted at the table. And those things were desperately needed in Imperial Rome, just like they are needed now. In our experience, in our culture of radical individualism and a culture of polarizing politics and economic stability where extending familial affection can feel like such a high responsibility. And I understand 
It's easy to, to read Paul superficially and hear some version of just get along together, which to be quite frank is a truism that doesn't work in my house with my own children, God help us. Much less does this work for the church or for our culture or for our world. So I think we actually need something more than just a bland commitment to acquiesce. And I think Paul gives us something here. See, scholars note that when Paul says at the end of the chapter, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. The word translated into English as believe there, the Greek term pastuen, it's derived for the same word that we use for faith. But here in this chapter, Paul's not talking about faith in the sense of some central piece of Christian doctrine like Jesus is Lord, but rather he's talking about the idea of belief as an expression of a conviction. And to think of this, think of an idea that informs an intentional way of life for you, a meaningful way of life that you take with you each and every, each and every day. And if we take that idea, it makes a lot more sense when we hear Paul's instruction earlier in the chapter where he says, each person, whether they think something's right or not, whether they think something's allowed or not, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Paul wants everybody in the community living with conviction. And his concern, on the one hand, is that some are going to impose their conviction on others and ask them to be more strict. While on the other hand, he's concerned that some are going to take this pressure and they're going to place it on others to compromise on their convictions, to let go of conviction, to do something that they feel isn't right. And it's that pressure towards agreement that Paul is pushing back against. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Paul says in verse 17. Then he says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And in these words, Paul argues for firm conviction on all sides, where freedom of conscience guides us for our individual choices and decisions, but service to others becomes the superior guiding principle. And superior in what way, you might ask? Well, in a culture like Rome's that was divided so strictly over lines of gender and economic status and over ethnic groups, Paul wants the Christian community to be a bright and a shining witness to a higher way of being where in-grouping and out-grouping wouldn't be the sacraments of the community, but instead welcome and inclusion and allowance offered even when differences, very real differences existed. And isn't, isn't that a vision that's still needed? Isn't that part of what we dream of here at Commons? I mean, we live in a moment where it seems that to be conservative and what it means to be progressive, these two things seem to be more at odds with each other than ever before. Because we can all control our friend groups and we can curate our view of the world to the exclusion of others. And where even our own religious tradition seems to be split on issues that matter. And it feels like to be a Christian is to be able to distinguish yourself from the other person who also calls themselves one. And for the record, there are convictions to be held and discussed and wisely arrived at and then asserted over and against others. But that is not to say that we are to surrender to the tyranny of agreement. 
No, here at Commons, we believe that there is another way. And we catch glimpses of it here in Paul and in his telling of the story of following Jesus, where we commit ourselves to each other in spite of our differences where I commit to hearing your views and, and vice versa, where we commit to bearing with each other's preferences and interpretations, where what guides us is a conviction that freedom is not the greatest sign of our maturity, but radical mutuality and care is. And the poetic words of Padre Gotuma have become a really strong guiding call for me in this when he offers that agreement has rarely been the mandate for people who love each other. Maybe on some things, but actually when you look at some people who are lovers and friends, you go, you know what, actually they might disagree really deeply on things, but they're somehow, I like the phrase he says, they're caught in the argument of being alive, which is an argument worth having. And it's an argument worth its cost in love. And it's an argument that Paul reminds us in Romans 14 that we aren't supposed to win so much as just stay in. And as we do this, we make a place of radical welcome along the way for the strong and for the weak. Let's pray. God, it's, it's not too hard to see ourselves here with words like weak and strong, judging, despising, holding up standards and rules, living into freedom. In all of these things, we need your help. We need your help to choose care over urgency with each other. And to see ourselves so clearly on this continuum that Paul sort of sets up where it's so easy to judge others that we feel go too far and it's so easy to look down on others that we feel refuse to change. And regardless of who we are in our story, we all need courage to hold wise convictions, to hold them firmly for ourselves so that we can stand in the world, but then to hold them gently enough so that we can share them and reflect them to others. <laughs> and we understand what a radical thing it is to form space around your story in these ancient words, to be people who are more committed to each other than to agreement, which is why we ask that you would help us in this not just here in our community, but as people who go out and live in the world and encounter this in so many ways, in the connections that we form, in the conversations that we give ourselves to, in the commitments that we live out to each other. And as we do, we do so with significant differences that remain. And we ask for courage to do this so that love would be seen and known. Hmm and so that our hearts would be made new. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.